Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Graham Spanier. But first, we're giving away a copy of his book. All you have to do is go to warroommedia.com, be a free subscriber, get a, be registered to win a copy of his book, In the Lion's Den, um, right there. It's, we'll do that at the end of this month, so the end of October. Okay, our guest is Dr. Graham Spanier. He was the president of Penn State from 1995 to 2011. Obviously, he's tied up in the Jerry Sandusky scandal, um, but when you hear his version of it, you start to realize that perhaps, perhaps he's not tied up in the way that maybe the public was led to believe. That's why we had him on. Dr. Spanier, welcome to the War Room. Thank you. Okay, so let me give you a quick background of, of my um, overview of the story. I remember when the Sandusky story broke. Um, um, Back in whatever it was, I remember where I lived at. I remember how I felt. I remember the debates I was getting online about this this very thing with Sandusky and McQuarrie and the boy in the shower and all that stuff. And this the outrage I had over this. And I remember Sandusky getting convicted and yourself and others. I don't. The names didn't mean as much as Sandusky, obviously, because that was kind of the the focal point. And then and then I come across this guy named John Ziegler, and he has this Framing Paterno podcast, and I'm like. Okay, well, let's let's have him on. And so John said, well, if you'll listen to my podcast, then, then I'll come on. So I listened to like whatever it is, 34 hours of Framing Paterno. And I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I've, I've, I've missed something here. And, and for full disclosure, um, I'll, I'll tell you this, and I'll tell John this, remember, uh, I think the podcast, his podcast, does a great job of giving a strong defense of raising questions about Sandusky's innocence. However, I think like anything else, it's, there's not a good rebuttal. So there's, there's plenty of questions that you, that, that if you're listening to it um, with a critical ear, John makes leaps that he can't actually substantiate, um, but they could be right. He just can't actually substantiate. So with all that being said, um, my view on this story um, has really changed and been, been brought into question. And so it, it's great to get you on to hear your version of events with, with all that being said, just so you understand kind of my um, journey through this story. So it's, Good to get you on. Maybe why don't you give me the the high level of the past, you know, whatever, 10, 12 years from your perspective of what's happened? Well, that's a very helpful background. And, uh, you know, there was a, a very strong initial narrative that came out through the media reports nationally. John Ziegler, among a few others, has become the rebuttal. <laughs> and so... Uh, he and many others who had no connection to Penn State University whatsoever started thinking early on, there are a lot of things about this story, about this narrative that do not make a lot of sense. And uh, what he has put out in terms of the facts and his research and what others uh, have put out as well, uh, it, it's 99% right. And my recent book, which is called In the Lion's Den, uh, is really the first published book of about 500 pages that attempts to give the whole honest story from someone who was right in the middle of it. So I think at this point in history, there is a pretty compelling negative uh, narrative that so much of what we heard early on was just plain wrong. And what did we hear early on? We heard early on that Jerry Sandusky, who had been an assistant football coach at Penn State 
many years ago and who had founded a, a charity for at-risk youth in 1977 uh, was being charged with a number of counts of, of uh, child abuse, of, of child sexual abuse. Uh, Jerry Sandusky had not been employed by the university for several years at that point. We're talking about uh, 2001. Uh, so he was he was not uh, attached to Penn State in any formal way. And when the story came out, uh, it all of a sudden morphed into a story not about Jerry Sandusky or his charity for thousands of, of youth, the second mile. It became a story about Joe Paterno, the legendary football coach, about Penn State football, about Penn State athletics, about the university and its administration. And that really wasn't what the story was about at all. Uh, it all hinged on uh, a shower incident that we now know was witnessed by a former assistant coach who simply said he saw Jerry horsing around with one of his youth in the shower uh, after a workout. Uh, he caught a glimpse of a second or two. It was indirect and around a corner because he didn't know what he actually saw. Uh, he mentioned this, we believe, some weeks later to his, uh, to his father and to a physician who his father worked with, who was a mandated reporter, who asked him if he saw anything sexual, and he said, no, he did not. Uh, and uh, he asked him that three times. And then uh, this individual, Mike McQuarrie, went to mention this to Joe Paterno. That is what happened several weeks later, we believe. And Joe Paterno said, well, you know, if, if you were uncomfortable with something, let me turn this over to the athletic director, the athletic director to his day-to-day -day supervisor, a vice president at the university. Then I was given a brief heads up on it uh, uh, not too long after that. Uh, we followed up on it in the best way we thought was appropriate at the time. Uh, but uh, then 10 years later, we heard nothing for 10 years, and all of a sudden, Jerry Sandusky was being charged, and it morphed into this scandal. And it was a rush to judgment. Media by the dozens descended on the university, and uh, the narrative that got out there was partly wrong, maybe even mostly wrong. And it's been very hard to change that perception. John Ziegler has tried. Uh, others who have written about it have tried. There are still people out there 10 years later who every day are trying to correct the narrative. And, and my book, which has precipitated the invitation, I think, to be on your show, is an attempt to talk about this from my perspective, my memoir and Everyone who has read it, and thousands have already, mm -hmm. have, uh, hundreds of them have written to me, and I've been on a speaking tour around the country. Even people who are pretty sure they knew the story are saying to me, I learned so much about things I did not know. Uh, so it's it's been very reaffirming to be out on, on this book, book tour. And that that's a little bit of what happened. Mm -hmm. That goes back more than uh, 20 years now. Yeah, I guess it is now that you say that. Okay, so let's pin this down real quick because the launching point here is critical. What you're saying is that Mike McQuarry reported that he saw Sandusky and a young boy horsing around. 
when when, when we're saying this this show is um, has explicit ratings, so we can say what we want. When we're saying horsing around, we're not trying to soften what Michael no. Curry said. That like two people in the shower just towel whipping, running around, goofing off, but nothing sexual about it. And that's important because what was what came out during the um, the, the scandal was that Mike McCreary saw something far more sinister um, in, 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 and and didn't do anything, basically slammed a locker and, and walked out, which is appalling. And if it's true, you, know, you don't have to respond to this, but I will respond as, as a father, he should be flogged in the streets publicly. So if that's all he did. So just, Mike, if you're listening, that's what I think. If your story's true, that's what I would say to you as a 6'3", 6'4", D1 quarterback, a freak human. You know, that, that That's just my take on that. So regardless, but that, so um, it's important now here just to, for you to, I think, to maybe touch on this. In today's era, 2022, regardless of what people think of the time, in 2022, it's easy for people to believe in cover-ups, to believe in uh, institutions suppressing stuff. So um, you're saying unequivocally that all you were told was it was a minor incident. There was never anything remotely sexual, and you also mentioned, which is important here, there were several mandated, uh, I think the first reporters at the term, where they have to actually go to the police. So maybe let's, let's just go back through this. So, let's, so um, there are people in this chain who heard about this incident that if they thought it was sexual, by law, they have to go and tell the authorities. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, the only word that was ever mentioned to me was horseplay. Uh that is what uh, I believe Joe Paterno, Tim Curley, Gary Schultz, and I all remember was w- what was said. Mm. And and I remember asking Tim Curley uh, when uh, he gave me this brief heads up, is that all that was said to you? Is that what you sure what you mm. heard that all was said? Was there anything else? And, and the answer was was no. Uh, John Dranoff, the physician who headed up the largest medical practice in town and who Mike McQuarrie's father worked for as the administrator, uh, asked him three times, okay, you were uncomfortable, uh, something made you nervous, but did you see anything sexual? And the answer three times was no. Dr. Granoff has testified to that. Uh, hey, good job, real quick. So Dr. Granoff is a licensed physician He's not like a medical cannabis doctor. <laughs> He's a normal practicing doctor. So by law, if he were to have covered this up, or he did, has he ever been charged with not doing anything appropriate? That, that's correct. So, so he, only, so, and so and he is not. He's never been charged. charged. And so he, no. would, by law, should have been charged if he, if he covered it up as well. Well, if he had, but sure. uh, he, he is one of the most respected uh, people and and one of the most talented and uh, admired physicians in in central Pennsylvania. Uh, he headed up a practice of of dozens of of physicians. Not only that, but after we heard this vague report from Mike McQuarrie, uh, I, we didn't know at the time. I didn't know it was Mike McQuarrie. I only learned about that through a news report ten years later. Uh, what we did, what we decided, is well, let's be super responsible about this. Let's turn this over to Jerry Sandusky's employer, the Second Mile, which is the charity that that he worked for then because he had been retired from Penn State. And uh, the head of that charity is a mandated reporter. And 
Tim Curley met with him to say, here's what we heard. Uh, Jerry Sandusky works for you. Uh, if somebody was uncomfortable, then we're uncomfortable. And could you follow up on it? Uh, and so uh, that mandated reporter did not follow up, except I think to tell Jerry Sandusky, well, if you're going to shower with our second mile kids, wear a swimsuit because somebody could perceive it uh, uh, in a wrong way. Right. And uh, and Tim Curley also spoke to Jerry Sandusky, who offered for him to talk to the kid who was in the shower. I mean, he was mm -hmm. just sort of 14 years old, we know. So he wasn't really a kid uh, in, in the sense. He was a teenager. And um, we thought we'd handled it well, and that was the end of it. Mm. And it, a decade later, sure enough, it came back to bite us all. It besmirched the reputation of Joe Paterno. It, uh, it caused Joe to uh, be fired by the board of trustees of the university and in, in the midst of the media frenzy, I stepped down as president of Penn state, Tim Curley and Gary Schultz were put on, uh, uh, Gary Schultz retired. Tim Curley was put on administrative leave and there were literally dozens of other Penn state employees who lost their jobs because of this. It, it was heartbreaking to the entire world of Penn state alumni uh the, the the whole we had at the time six hundred thousand living alumni of penn state and it, it affected everybody okay and, and just for the interest of time here you've said in the book in other spots that your relationship with sandusky was basically non-existent you've met him once there's a picture you don't know him and so i don't want to focus much on that just for the audience's standpoint that's why it's, to your what your claim is you don't know the man the claim would be ultimately that you're protecting Paterno, right? He is really the name. Sandusky, maybe in Pennsylvania was a name, in Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi. No one cared or heard or knew who Jerry Sandusky was. Paterno would be the person protecting. Why would you, or how would you argue against someone going, well, you're trying to protect Paterno. Paterno was protecting Sandusky. You might know Sandusky, but Paterno, he was the one to be protected. What would you say to that? Well, I, uh, that's flawed thinking. I mean, as you point out, I only had one conversation with Jerry Sandusky in my life. Joe Paterno and I never had a single conversation about any of this. Never. The only person Joe spoke with was Tim Curley, and he was passing along what Mike McQuarrie told him he, he Joe did what he was supposed to do. If he heard anything that concerned him, you just tell your supervisor and assume it will, it, it will be handled uh, one way or another. Uh, so there's no reason to protect Joe Paterno. Um, you know, Joe Paterno was someone who was a person of incredible integrity and honesty. He was a no nonsense kind of guy. Uh, he uh, and that's the way I operated as well. I what would there have what what could anybody think was involved in having to protect Joe Paterno? He didn't need any protection. He didn't do anything wrong. This was not about Penn State football. This was a uh, someone on his staff coming in say just want to let you know about something. It 
Okay, so if no one needs protection, how do we get to where we're at? If there is no wrongdoing, essentially, from your standpoint, paternal standpoint, how do we get to the spot to where, uh, well, paternal obviously dies um, shortly after all this, but but you guys all get sentenced to jail. Yeah. Well, I talk about, this is quite a bit of, of what's in the book, is how this all got started. Uh, we had an attorney general who had his sights on becoming governor of Pennsylvania. Uh, he did become governor of Pennsylvania. Uh, he downplayed the investigation while he was attorney general, because I think he didn't want to get crossways with anyone in in the public perception. But after he became governor, he appointed his deputy to then fill his term as attorney general. And he put the chief of his criminal division in charge of this investigation. And, uh, he had, for reasons I can't fully understand, must have thought of me as a as a rival of some sort. Uh, he saw me in an elevator at a football game with his opponent for governor, and his first act as governor was to put out a new budget for the state in which he uh, proposed cutting Penn State's appropriation in half, the single largest cut in the history of American higher education. Of course, I pushed back on that. And the same day that the that the budget came out and I pushed back on it, I was called to meet with the uh, prosecutors and investigators in the attorney general's office <laughs> to talk about this and then called to a grand jury. So is that coincidence? I don't think so. I think it was in large part about uh, the governor taking some control over Penn State, removing me as president of Penn State, uh, charging not only Sandusky, but two administrators at the university. I wasn't charged until a year later because there was no evidence. There was nothing that I did, but they worked very, very hard to try to find something, anything, uh, where they could continue to promote this narrative. The... Uh, Investigators, prosecutors, some of the judges, uh, it's a who's who of wrongdoing within the Pennsylvania judicial system. And many of those involved have been sanctioned from a judge, the grand jury judge, being removed from his position by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court for his wrongdoing in this case. The lead prosecutor, the initial lead prosecutor, uh, having his license to practice law suspended for what he did in this case, the general counsel being censured by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court for what she did in this case, the attorney general who took over being sent to prison for two and a half years, sentenced to five, but serving two and a half years in prison after being in a tangle with the prosecutors over issues in this case. The list goes on and on. It has been a colossal mess of the Pennsylvania judiciary and prosecutorial system. So you have this list of people who um, who are supposed to be the good guys who end up being the bad guys. Um, you guys are the bad guys in this case and, and, and are arguing that you're, you're the good guys. So we have kind of this, this, this flip. But let's go back because – 
to, to get there, it, just go back to maybe a little bit of the whirlwind of events. Um, so the news breaks, as I said, um, you know, P- uh, Paterno's fired shortly thereafter. Uh, you stepped down as well. Um, and, you know, the, the media circus around this, um, again, from I was living in Louisiana at the time, was tremendous. It was wall-to-wall coverage on ESPN. Um, what were the mistakes that were made from your perspective on the Penn State side of things during the initial media blitz? Uh, I think uh, one mistake up front was that the board of trustees at the university, our governing board, which had 32 members, got itself into a panic about this. They essentially issued a gag order of the president and the head football coach, the two people who were prepared to get out in front of this, talk to the media, and uh, get some control over the narrative and and get the truth out there as, as we knew it early on. The board of trustees decided to manage it, and they waited too long to do it. Meanwhile, Uh, Scores of reporters are coming into town. We have to block off a street or two for satellite trucks. Uh, And in the absence of the university talking about this and managing it, what you get is the media filling the gaps. They have to fill the airtime and the newspaper space. And uh, many in the media immediately jump to the worst possible conclusions, declaring people guilty, even uh, one of the state's largest newspapers putting out a front page editorial demanding that Joe Paterno be fired and that Graham Spanier be be fired. Never mind any due process, any discussion, uh, jumping to an absolute conclusion. And within a matter of a couple of days, the Board of Trustees decided that the route they wanted to take was a kind of a typical corporate management route where you declare everybody guilty, you take a a write-off for the quarter, you you spend as much money as you have to to make it go away, you you hire lawyers and public relations consultants, and you say this is all gonna go away soon. Well, it's 10 years later, and tens of thousands of people are still talking about it. We're still talking about it. Okay, so when you say that, the the first thing I think is, if I'm, of course, it's easy with, with you know, a bit of a hindsight. Um, but if I'm Graham Spanier, what I'm doing is I'm reaching out to reporters off the record. I'm having all my underlings reaching out to reporters off the record to tell what we know. Did you do that? No, no. I was, I was told that the Board of Trustees wanted to manage this, and I should not talk to reporters. And being very dutiful and knowing that, I report to a board, and they're in charge. I, I did not do that. Uh, in in hindsight, to use your term, uh, maybe I I should have because what's the worst thing that could happen? I would lose my job, <laughs> <laughs> right? But you know, we we could have gotten the the story out there. What, what I did instead was to tell the board of trustees everything I knew and what I thought they should be doing, mm-hmm. but. It wasn't being done. And unfortunately, the chair of the board didn't feel he could manage it. He, he said to me, 
on a Sunday afternoon, you're the only one who can manage this. If the board doesn't let you manage it, I'm going to have to step down as chair of the board. So the vice chair of the board became the de facto chair of the board. And he was a, a high powered corporate executive who was used to taking charge and mm. declaring how it would be. And he told others on the board uh, uh, at one point, this is how we're going to do it. And he used the expression, we're not drinking the Kool-Aid. In other words, I want everybody 100% behind me. I'm going to go out and this is what we're going to do. We're going to fire Joe Paterno effective immediately. Uh, you're all going to sit behind me. So the cameras pick up the whole board sitting behind me. And I'm going to say what, what's going to happen. Uh, it, it got a little crazy because... Uh, they told the media there would be a press conference at nine o'clock at night. They weren't quite ready. It ended up being 10 at night. They fired Joe Paterno in a, in a phone call. And, uh, you know, by 10 at night, the anxiety level for the media and everyone involved was very high. You've been on, you've been at Penn State how long when this happened? Well, I'd been the president for more than 16 years. And I had served on okay. the faculty and in my first administrative positions yes. for nine years before that. So at, at that point, I had 25 years of service to the university. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like to say you you can take me out of the university, but you can't take the university out of me. I, I'm so <laughs> it, it, it's so much a part of me and my life. And I, I believe I contributed a lot to the university. So. I cared so deeply about this, and it was devastating to me to have to step out of my position. And I, I talk about that devastation right. in, in the book very candidly. The reason I'm asking is, um, being in the corporate world, what you're describing to me sounds exactly like I would expect corporate executives to act, or people that have, um, you know, they're, they're, they have their, their self-interest to serve. Um, and so there's there's several things that you said. There's like, yeah, I, I can see how these board of directors would do this. Um, just like it's easy to paint the narrative. It's easy to paint a couple of narratives here. One, which is yourself and others rallied around Paterno, Sandusky to kind of protect your own. And it's also easy to see the same narrative, which is the board of directors um, are self-serving and, and not really interested in, in, in going through the scandal. And so they're, they're cutting bait. Um, were you surprised with the board of directors and how they acted. Did you think they were perhaps cowardice going into this? Did you, had you seen these traits in them before, or was this like, oh my gosh, I thought these people were, were my friends? Well, just let me correct one thing. Uh, we didn't rally around Sandusky when we heard he was going to be charged. We, no, we no, no, thought... no, yeah, I, I'm, saying, I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that you did. I'm saying, I'm saying yeah. from the outside perspective, uh, you... the narrative, around you guys that you you were you had rallied to cover up for Sandusky and that was an easy narrative to believe right and if, then, if, you know, I, I agree I, I get that you're you're screening that I'm saying it's also the same narrative of, of the board being but our feeling was and my feeling was if any of these charges even if a fraction of what Sandusky is being accused of is true uh he should be punished to the full extent of the law we didn't know anything about that and we weren't certainly in any position to protect him. And it wasn't really a, a Penn State issue. In fact, I will point out that of all of the, he, he was charged with a lot of different crimes, but 
he was found not guilty on three charges. Those pertained to the Penn, the connection to Penn mm-hmm. State, <laughs> to that shower incident. Yeah. So, so, but to get to the the heart of your question, no, the board of trustees, uh, and they had just renewed my contract again for another five years. They uh, were fully supportive of me during my entire presidency. Uh, it, it was a wonderful situation. I considered many of them my friends. Uh, they they gave me raises without me ever asking. Uh, it, it was a just a wonderful relationship between a governing board and the president. And the board during my presidency, and I don't think in the history of Penn State, had ever been in a position where they had to manage a crisis. So when this happened, no, they were not ready for it. Uh, They said they didn't want me to manage it. We know now that they had a governor, this governor I spoke about, behind the scenes influencing them. Uh, And the governor is a member of the board of trustees of the university. Uh, So uh, no, the board was not prepared to manage it. And uh, they took this, what I describe in the book as a typical corporate approach, mm-hmm. uh, even to the point where they basically said immediately, without knowing if anything had actually happened or if anybody was guilty of anything, they said, uh, in effect, the university is declaring its guilt. Uh, we'll offer free counseling to anybody. Uh, anybody who feels they were abused by Jerry Sandusky, we will take responsibility for it. Raise your hand. They gave out, I think, about $130, $140 million to people without vetting them to determine if anything had actually happened. It it, it had, and, and they thought insurance would cover it. But then the insurance company sued Penn State saying, no, we're not going to pay that. We, we don't believe a lot of, of what how you're handling this. And so there was a lawsuit there. I had said early on to my attorneys, once I realized I I probably needed to get an attorney, that I would never take the fifth. I will testify in any trial. I will give any deposition. Somebody has got to be out there telling the truth. And there are so many people who aren't. I will do that. I am not going to hide from this. And uh, I testified in in the lawsuit between the insurance company and Penn State. I testified, uh, gave a deposition in the lawsuit between Penn State and the NCAA and state officials who were suing the NCAA who had inappropriately punished the university. uh, And uh, and, uh, the NCAA lost that. They They had to restore Joe Paterno's wins and acknowledge that they didn't have the authority to do what they did. Okay. Yeah, just circle back there. Yeah, I, I wasn't saying that you guys were actually rallying around Sandusky. I said that it's easy for people to believe that narrative. It's also, I think, yeah. easy to to see how the narrative of the board overreacted and, and they they they, um, they piled on us and, and, and kind of fired us all and, and dismissed us. So those are easy narratives for people to believe. I think the hard narrative, of course, is that the that the prosecutors um, went overboard and, and maybe for some, I, I think there's plenty of stories out there with prosecutors going crazy. So for others, it's easier to believe. But part of this centers around a man named Lewis Free mm-hmm. and his report. Yeah. And part of the problem when you're dealing with these things, whether it's whatever side of the issue you're on, if it's 
if you were fighting Penn State and President Graham Spanier is against you, that's a problem. Graham Spanier is the president of the university. He's got, um, uh, you had some kind of high-level clearance with the government. You're on corporate boards. The opposite now happens where they bring in this guy who was a former FBI director, a big name, a hot shot, and he writes a report that, I don't want to say sinks the ship for you guys, but really stacks the deck as well, it seems. What did he get wrong? He got most everything wrong. Uh, the only worthwhile part of his report is that he made a few suggestions in relation to something called the Cleary Act, which uh, is uh, an act that was passed many years ago, but uh, was never really clarified by the U.S. Department of Education as to what kinds of things uh, are reported within a university. Uh, most of his report has been thoroughly debunked now. Uh, and it, it's it's a disgraced report in the minds of many, many people. And that is true of many of the reports Louis Free has done after he uh, started a, a company that does investigations like, like this, all kinds of in investigations. Uh, he became an entrepreneur and started a company and using his title as a former FBI director uh, and the prestige that comes along with a, a title like that, he goes out and does investigations for corporations, uh, for companies, individuals, uh, and in our case, a university. He had prior ties with the person who oversaw him, uh, uh, in effect, was part of hiring him to do this. He had prior relationships with the governor, who encouraged bringing him in. There's certain conflicts of interest there. And Louis Free is someone who gets hired to give the hiring entity a report that they would like to get. In, in this case, it's my opinion that the Board of Trustees caught so much heat, incredible heat, for firing Paterno. And to a lesser extent, me, Paterno obviously was even a, a greater public figure. There was so much heat around that that the board needed a report to vindicate themselves for having taken this action. And in the book, I reveal some internal communications that uh, had to be shared with me because of the legal process, uh, drafts of documents and uh, notes uh, from behind the scenes in, in board of trustees meetings that talk about what they, what they were up to. Uh, the former governor of Pennsylvania, uh, now deceased, Dick Thornburg, also he's the former attorney general of the United States, did a comprehensive report, uh, which basically said that the free report was a rush to injustice. And I quote from that report in my book, the uh, a, a group of the elected alumni of the Board of Trustees of the university uh, did a report which thoroughly analyzed not only the free report, but all of the internal documents and notes that he used to come to his false conclusions. And they have denounced the free report. And you mentioned John Ziegler, and there are many others. The, the free report, as it's come to be known, has no credibility, and I have three chapters in my book that uh, document 
why that is so. So let's just step outside your story for a second here. You have a former FBI director. You've got a governor, attorney general, all these big names that are involved with your story. Of course, you're a big name as well. Uh, Board of Trustees of Penn State, big names. How do we as society step back and evaluate these stories? Because whatever side of the story is true, right? So if it's the official narrative um, of a Sandusky cover-up, then you have high-ranking officials covering up the worst atrocities. If it's your side of the story that's true, then it's high-ranking officials burying people for personal vendettas because they're cowards, because they don't believe in anything. Regardless, we have high-ranking officials involved in a cover-up and ruining people's lives. How is society, do we step back and evaluate these news stories? Because the claims from both sides here the stakes are very high for the general public. I think it's a great, great question. And I say in the book, in, in our society, we should be able to go after people who are truly perpetrators, who have committed crimes without throwing under the bus people who are not involved or who are very remotely or tangentially in the picture, surely we should be able to, to to have a country where that is how our judicial system works. But there are far too many examples of injustice, uh, of wrongdoing. There is something called the Innocence Project, which finds individuals who have been uh, uh, improperly in, uh, found guilty or incarcerated. And in my book, I mention a few examples uh, of these kinds of injustices, like the Central Park Five, I mentioned examples of where there have been more. There's been moral panic, as I talk about it. That's the title of, of one of the chapters, of moral panic, where people, uh, uh, w- with the assistance of the media, rush to a judgment, and people's lives are ruined because of that. And in in society's view, the uh, the sexual abuse of a child is about the worst things somebody can be accused of. I mean, even more than maybe somebody being murdered. If you sexually abuse a child, you are, if you're even accused of that, you you are doomed to have your reputation ruined, if not sent to jail for the rest of your life. So it it's, it, it, it's something we have to contend with in America. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, and here we have a, a case where uh, the charges were made uh, along those lines to, to Jerry Sandusky. It involved a very high profile. Uh, he had been he had been attached earlier to a high profile university. He was a revered coach, one, you know, a d- the defensive coordinator of Penn State's great defense at linebacker university. And everybody was was pulled into this, and uh, it, it's just a, a a very a very sad situation. Fortunately for Joe Paterno, Tim Curley, Gary Schultz, me, and others at, at Penn State, so many people knew us, and so many people believed in us. That's the silver lining in this that I have felt so supported for the last ten years, and 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 people who have read my book are writing me every day, 
hundreds of people, I'm not exaggerating, are writing me to talk about this and, and thanking me uh, for for writing the book. I want to point out one thing you mentioned that I'm glad you did. It's important. I had the lead role in national security matters for American higher education. I even have two commendations from Louis Free when he was FBI director for my assistance to the FBI. I had an office, a, a team that worked with me at FBI headquarters in relation to my work there as a chair of a national security advisory board. I served as the civilian on the National Counterintelligence Working Group. You know, it's been in the news lately. I had not only top secret clearances, I had, this is what's been in the news, there's something called SCI clearances, sensitive compartmented information, higher level than top secret. Uh, and at the same time Louis Free was doing his investigation, I was having my security clearance renewed. You have to have it renewed every so often. At the level of my clearances requires a polygraph. I was completely cleared in an investigation that paralleled Louis Free's investigation. But the Louis Free and the Attorney General and the judges and the Penn State Board of Trustees, even though I offered to hand over that invest that federal investigation to them so they could see there was no wrongdoing on my part. They refused to look at it. They didn't want to look at it. I said to Louis Free, please do not issue your report until you see that federal investigation. He would have none of it. He rushed his report out. So, so to be clear, you're saying when your clearance is being renewed, the people who do that asked you specifically questions pertaining to this case with a polygraph and looked into it and cleared you. They, they not only asked me every imaginable question you could ask, more than Louis Free did in his interview with me, they wanted to make sure that I was not tainted in any way. I had to be completely trustworthy. Uh, so... They also, the federal investigator, interviewed a number of people that Louis Free refused or was unwilling to interview. I was the only person attached to this directly or even remotely that Louis Free interviewed because I insisted on it. My lawyers insisted on it. All of the others, he avoided interviewing. He didn't interview uh Gary Schultz, he didn't interview Tim Curley. He didn't interview uh, Mike McQuarrie. He didn't interview Joe Paterno. Uh, I can go down down the line. He didn't interview J Dr. John Drano. He didn't interview any of those folks, I believe, because there was a, a possibility in his mind he couldn't have issued the report he did because it would have been contradicted. And he ignored a lot of what, what I said in, in my interview with him. But the federal investigator who oversaw the renewal of my security clearance, John Snedden is his name, a former decorated NCIS investigator who now did this uh, security clearance review for the federal investigative services. His report was longer than the free report, and it completely cleared me. The polygraph that I mentioned, by the way, was before this. It wasn't during that same period.
So with all that being said, how are you convicted? I'm convicted by what uh, might be described as a uh, as a conspiracy or a collusion. Uh, I, I don't. I'm not using that in a legal sense, but it was a a, a combined effort to once it got started, it was very hard for anyone to stop it. Anyone in the prosecutorial or judicial system. I liken it to a a locomotive that gets started very slowly. And you can stop a locomotive before it picks up much steam without that much effort. But once it's picked up some steam, it is very hard to slow it down. You need a lot of power to slow it down. And what happened is people started jumping on the bandwagon. You had the media narrative. You had the board of trustees. Uh, you, you had the prosecutors. You had Louis Free. You had uh, judges who have in their courtroom these same prosecutors every day. They, they don't know me. They don't see me. My lawyers, I have, I have great legal representation, and they're constantly filing these briefs demonstrating why they're not following the law right, that there's no basis for this. They're offering me to Early on, they said, well, if there's something you heard Spaniards say in the grand jury that you're unclear about, we are offering to have him come back to the grand jury and clarify anything. They wouldn't take me up on that. They wouldn't allow my lawyers to meet with the attorney general to talk about this early on. It it was almost as if the judicial and prosecutorial system was fully aligned to keep this moving in one direction. They charged Tim Curley and Gary Schultz with perjury at the same time they charged Jerry Sandusky. And what my lawyers explained to me that this was an effort to get Tim Curley and Gary Schultz to flip on me because I was the big fish. If they could bring down the president of Pennsylvania's most visible and prominent university, that would be a feather in their cap. I told my lawyers from the beginning, there is no way that Tim Curley and Gary Schultz will flip on me. Why? Because they are people who I've worked with every day for 16 years. We have complete openness and honesty. They are people of great integrity. They would never tell a lie. They would never say to these prosecutors, oh, yes, we told Graham Spanier that we heard something about child abuse. Uh, because they didn't hear it. And when I decided that I was not ever going to take a plea bargain, it would be against my values to claim, to, to say that I was guilty of something that I'm not guilty of. I will go to trial and be defended. And they called Gary Schultz and Tim Curley as witnesses at that trial and took them years to get there, 2017, before we went to trial. And on the witness stand, Guess what? They told the truth. They said, no, we never told Graham Spanier anything like that because we never heard anything like that. And the prosecutor and the judge got so angry with them for telling the truth, they sentenced the two of them together to a combined 12 months in prison and house arrest. And to be clear, the argument you're making is, they could have 
um, as you said, they could have lied, gotten off probably immunity, something like that. And so your argument is they did the hard thing um, because it was the truth. And so and by doing that, put themselves in jeopardy, correct? Yes. They they were told early on, well, if you guys take a plea bargain, you'll have probation. Don't worry. Right. It'll amount to nothing. But when they told the truth at my trial, the hammer came down on them. You mentioned the slow train. Looking back now, what was the moment in time and how should the train have been stopped? The train should have been stopped uh, at, at any of a number of points. The governor should have had enough integrity to know that what he was up to was not right. He should have stopped it. The prosecutor, the, the lead prosecutor in the beginning, Frank Fina is his name, uh, after he met with, he and his colleagues met with me, and after I testified before the grand jury, they should have believed me. You give people the benefit of the doubt. I have tremendous credibility, and I have my national security clearances, and I've never done anything wrong in my life. I've never been charged with anything. You know, you you don't rush to an extreme conclusion and try to put somebody in jail. You know, they used over the years a substantial portion of the budget of the attorney general's office to try to find something to charge me with. When there is rampant crime throughout the state that that they should be paying attention to. Uh, and as an attorney general, you can pick and choose what you want to go after. Th this was something that, that they were determined to do and would not back off. And they made it into a, a big public spectacle. It could have been stopped there. It also been, could have been stopped by the board of trustees instead of throwing all of us under the bus of defending us of saying, wait a minute, we know these people. We've worked with them every day. They are honorable people, and we are going to stand behind them. Now, the board and I put out an email, a, a news release uh, in the midst of this. Uh, it was put out on a, uh, we agreed to it on a Sunday night. It was put out on a Monday morning saying, uh, we're, we're we're concerned about all of this, and we are going to do an independent investigation. So, in effect, calm down, everybody. We're going to pay attention to this. That was put out there. It was pretty much ignored. And uh, but the board should have been stronger early on. And you you defend your administrators who have run the university so well and with such dedication. They didn't do it, and and then it could have been stopped at any point along the way by the uh, various sequence of prosecutors and attorneys general or any of the judges who had motions before them that were very compelling. And none of those judges had the courage to make a proper judgment. None of them who could have stopped it along the way. We did have a federal judge when, when we went to federal court who said this is all wrong, this violates principles of the Constitution, and she threw it out. And then wouldn't you know, the Attorney General said, well, we're appealing that to the Federal Third Circuit Court of Appeals. So we did have a couple of judges. We had some judges along the way who ruled properly, but then 
it was always overruled at the next level that we couldn't get the train stopped. I think the interesting thing about the timing now of talking about these issues is, um, you know, I'm born in 85, so I'm 37. And so going through my life, um, thinking about how I've viewed institutions, whether they're government or large institutions, and how my parents or my grandparents have to where we're at now in society. You know, the things that you're saying and how you're trying to clear your name is far more believable that something like this would happen in 2022 than in 2002 or 2012, right? The government maliciously coming after someone is is quite believable today. Um, And that's not a Republican or Democrat issue. That's just a... Watchers yeah. of true crime, <laughs> you know, can kind of follow these stories and go, oh, my gosh, these people are crazy. They are railroading these folks. What is going on? I, I think, yeah, you're you're quite right. It, it's it's certainly very believable today, uh, and it doesn't have anything to do with what side of the political spectrum you on. I mean, fortunately, we have investigative journalists. We have podcasters, and we have people like you. We, we have uh, people who when they hear the news, you know, we tend to believe what's in the news, but there's actually a lot of skepticism of of the media these days. Mm -hmm. And there are people, fortunately, who are willing to to look at things uh, more deeply and to say, is is what I'm hearing correct? And and I think what my book does in in the lion's den, it, it, anyone who reads it will come away thinking, Oh my! What happened here? What's the real story? What happened to Spanier? Nobody. I say in the beginning of the book, I have a disclaimer. If anyone can tell me any fact in this book, and it's well documented, that they dispute, tell me, and I will correct it. Thousands of people have read the book already. Not a single person has disputed any fact that's in there, and you know they can't because I have documentation on everything I say. Okay, last question for you. Who's the one person that you would like to sit in a room and say, why? And hear their side of the story. Why did you betray us? (laughs) Oh, it would be hard to pick out one person. Uh, I'd, I'd probably want to sit down and sort of regroup on all of this with the board of trustees because they have distanced themselves from me early on. I have a lot of friends on the board, but I'd want to say, you know, why did you handle this the way you did after all of my service to the university and you all knowing me and know I did nothing wrong? Why? Okay, so Board of Trustees, there it is. Let's let's get this thing done, get this thing patched up. Uh, open invite. I'll be happy to sit as a fly on the wall and listen to that conversation. Okay, we're going to link to the book. None of, those, none of those trustees are still on the board. It's all changed over. So, <laughs> right, it's all changed. I know. Yeah, I know. We can have a we can have a nice private powwow. We can all talk about it, hash it out. Probably probably put a book out from that as well. Okay, we're going to link to the book, of course, in the show notes. Um, and then you have a website, I believe. Where else do you want us to push people to? Yeah, the, the website is SpanierInTheLionsDen.com, and it has links to all of the media interviews, podcasts, information about the book, my appearances around the country, uh, news reports, um, 
the blurbs that people write after they read the book and have commentary on it. Some of them are very eminent people who are going to be well known to uh, to readers. Uh, I've been very fortunate to have have a lot of support. Okay, and we're actually giving away a copy of the book as well. Um, so if you go to warroommedia.com, we'll be giving away a copy of the book. So, uh, Graham, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Ryan. All righty, let me, uh, there we go.